Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Katie Faust and Stacey Manning. Katie Faust is the founder and director of the children's rights organisation, Them Before Us, and co-author of a new book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And I've got a hard copy of the book here. Katie rose to international prominence as an advocate for traditional marriage during the same-sex marriage debate in America and Australia. She publishes widely on the rights of children and is a regular contributor at The Federalist. Stacey Manning is senior editor at Them Before Us and co-author of the Them Before Us. She's collaborated with Katie in writing articles on children's rights for many years. I was particularly keen to talk to these ladies because as a former member of the Australian Parliament, one of the most staggering things I've noticed in recent times is that politicians have stopped talking about family. On the left and the right, family was always something politicians wanted to appeal to. They don't talk about it anymore. This is happening at the same time as all the data is telling us that our children are in deep trouble, our boys particularly. You can't get away from the research. It's really concerning. And it's beyond me why we are not recognising that we've developed a culture that is simply not working for our children. So thank you very much, ladies, for joining me uh, here in Seattle. Thank you for having us. Good to have you here. Can I begin? Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourselves? How did you come to be uh, working on uh, uh, such an important area, on this book, uh, and your relationship with one another? As, as I understand it, uh, uh, Katie, you're an acknowledged researcher, analyst, you love that, uh, and you're a great communicator, and, and, and the book shows us. So tell Thank us something you. about your backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And your interest in children's rights. Uh, I think that I could say that we are involved in this just out of sheer anger. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. the truth. Yeah, like we just kind of saw what the world was saying about kids and about uh, their needs. And um, personally, it just pushed me over the line you know, especially during the marriage debate. You saw it in your country. We, we experienced it hot and heavy here in 2012, all the way until when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage for the entire country, was this um, ignoring, diminishing of the rights and needs of children to elevate the desires of adults. And um, that was what got me involved, where I said, we are tolerant of adults and what they want to do, but once you start insisting that kids sacrifice so you can live as, as you please, that's where. It was a bit much for me, so. Um, and when we began writing, I don't necessarily think that we were um, targeting children's rights. This is something that really evolved from um, pushback on a, a website, they um, aptly, not aptly titled, but ironically titled Ask the Bigot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
because everyone, um, all the loudest voices were saying the only way that you uh, could oppose gay marriage is because you're uh, simply a hateful bigot, um, which is certainly not the case. And so writing on this blog together, um, we really, we started to realize as we confronted the arguments and, and the pushback, oh, like this, this is a, a global, um, this is a global issue and, and all of these things that we're writing about, we're, we're talking about children's rights. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that that's an actual, that's a thing. I think this is where we should be targeting this. And, mm -hmm. and from that, um, I mean, you know, write it and they will read it. Yeah. It began with marriage and we very, very quickly realized that every topic related to marriage and family ultimately has to do with the rights of children to their own mother and father and really whether you are respecting those rights or whether you are disregarding those rights. Well, uh, the thing uh, that I would say right up front to anybody listening to this conversation thus far, there's two things. The first is that your work has been recognized and commended by some of the most powerful thinkers in this country. So it can't be taken lightly. The second thing I would say is that I'm a great believer in research, in data, and getting the facts. And that's what you've focused on so we've run up into this problem first up in our culture now. As Ayan Hersey Ali calls it, we're becoming an democracy, not a democracy. What does he mean? We, 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 we are who we feel we are now. We feel things. We feel good or we don't feel good. We're not looking at the data. The data tells us our children in every Western country are in serious trouble. So I just throw that challenge out to any naysayer right at the beginning, you need to hear these arguments and get hold of the book before you react if you claim to be a compassionate person, and you ought to be because our children are not doing well. So let's start then uh, to quote from this profoundly important book that you've uh, put together. If you're hearing, this is the quote, the term modern family in inverted commas, it's a safe bet the rights of children have been compromised. What is a modern family, as you seek to uh, descript it here, and why is it uh, so that children's rights are compromised in modern families? What's the central thesis of the book? It said modern family means that the desires of the adults involved are prioritized over the needs and the rights of the children that might inhabit that family. Um, I, think the, I think the main thesis of the book would be um, that Adults need to do hard things, and that means that we put our desire for what we want, what would satisfy us, um, behind the rights of a child to be known and raised by their biological mother and father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we tackle a lot of issues in the book. Um, we look at no-fault divorce. We look at same-sex parenting. Um, we look at sperm and egg donation, which is pursued um, by a lot of infertile heterosexual couples, as well as same-sex couples. And single um, women. And single women, single adults. Um, we look at surrogacy, and we look at adoption, right? And we look and we address cohabitation, we address polygamy, we address transgender parenting. Um, and so what we see is that all of these different forms of family, with the exception of adoption, um, in essence, elevate adult desire, adult sexual fulfillment, adult sexual identity above a child's right to be known and loved by both their mother and father. And so 
There are situations where you may not have an intact natural family, where um, the adults are striving to do the hard thing, but that is not the dominant marriage today around modern family. Mm. Modern family says, my desires, my sexual identity, my romantic um, pursuits, that is the ultimate good. And what happens then is the child has to sacrifice to accommodate that adult desire. And in the lexicon of family, in the venue of family, most often that insists that children will lose a relationship with their mother and father completely or partially to achieve that adult desire. Mm. And that's an injustice. Now, none of us are impervious to pain, or we're not human if we are. Uh, and in the book, you say that you had to cross a threshold because you realised that to go out on this limb would be unpopular, mm. that it would cost you friends. And I suspect there's an awful lot of people out there who think, I'm uncomfortable with this, but I daren't say anything. Mm -hmm. You're being very brave. Are you impervious to pain? No. No, I think everybody wants to be liked, be comfortable. Um, but we're past the time in our culture worldwide um, to seek comfort. Um, we're not going to leave our kids a better world. And the hard thing that we adults are doing are just simply speaking truths. Um, it's, it shocks me that our book is so popular. Um, it's sold well? It has, and in five, I think it's been translated into five languages already. Uh, um, it, it's, it's a stunning thing, but truth has a ring to it, and people want to hear it. And if um, more people are armed with the information that we've provided in the book, because, because it really is a manual, um, uh, I think that they will have more courage um, with the facts and with the studies and, and the statistics uh, to go ahead and speak up. Um, there's a a real unique power in being right and correct in your assessment of a subject. No matter no matter the pushback that you get, I know that I can rest in the the truth that we've written the truth, and it is based in reality and factual information, no matter the opinions that might be negative. I think that people generally fall on one or the other side of the spectrum, um, either a truth teller or a grace giver. And I would say that Stacy naturally is more of a truth teller than I am. Perhaps. And maybe, maybe I'm more of a grace giver than you are. 100%. Right. And so I needed a lot more courage probably than Stacy did to start talking about this kind of thing because I'm more squeamish about that. Um, so that's an area where I had to grow. Can I ask how much of that was because you didn't want to feel lonely and alienated and how much of it was because you genuinely didn't want to offend people who had a different opinion? Oh, both of them. Both of them. Right? Mm -hmm. I care so much about yeah. what people think. I don't yeah. want to lose friends. Yeah. Um, and I would rather keep the peace than speak up. Right, and Stacy's more like, I'm sorry, this is wrong, yeah. and somebody has to say it. Yeah, there's an elephant here. Right, so yeah. I had to grow a lot more in, in courage, I think, than Stacy probably had it just by dint of her personality a little bit more than I did. Um, and so it took me a long time. Like when we first started blogging at that mm. blog, oh, you were so the nice. I was so nice, ridiculous, and nice. scared and afraid. <laughs> and it was anonymous, right? It was anonymous because I didn't. I mean, I wasn't shy about my convictions with my family and friends, like I wasn't hiding, but I also didn't feel like I needed to be out in the world and talking about it all the time. But also I was a chicken, like I was afraid. 
Um, but at some point, you have to say, genuine injustice is being done to the most vulnerable in our society, and it might be worth losing friends over. Right, because, you know, we, we eventually will have to answer to only one, mm -hmm. one entity. I'm not accountable to uh, my friends, my, my closely held loved ones. Um, it's injustice, and we are directed to care for our widows and orphans, and we're in a society now that is making orphans to satisfy adult desire. And that's, I, I can't think of anything, well, I can think of plenty of things wrong, but it's very not right. Katie, when you were in Australia, you went on Q&A, which in those days was a reasonably regarded and still followed um, uh, television program on our national broadcaster. Uh, and at one point, in an attempt, I think, to say, oh, yes, but your opinions don't matter quite so much, the, uh, the compere said, uh, but you're a Christian. I think it was an evangelical claptrap. Was that the word he used? I can't remember. <laughs> I think that there was something about that. Well, yeah. So what would you say to people who would say, well, this book is just evangelical claptrap? Yeah, well, I am an evangelical. I am like one of the biggest Bible thumpers you'll ever meet. I carry my Bible around with me everywhere. I read the Bible with every woman that I'm with if I can. She's going to get a great seat in heaven. I Seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say, which, which scripture in the book do you most object to? Which Bible verse did we include that you think really is pushing my religious agenda on you? And the answer is, there's no scripture in the book right? That this really is not as much of a Christian issue as it is a human issue, mm -hmm. right? This is something that applies to every child in every country who follows any religious path, whether it was 2000 years ago or 2020 AD, right? This has to do with what it means to be a human child, not primarily about my Christian convictions. And so that's what the book is. We made an argument from biology, natural law, the highest level social science. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am with Ayan Hirsi Ali um, in that we don't want to give too much emphasis to emotivism, but emotion has its place. Mm -hmm. Both and, do. Yeah, they've got to hold them in balance. You've got yeah. to think, you've got to feel. And so right. the problem is we have felt for the wrong parties in the marriage and family debate. We have been too empathetic with adults and not empathetic enough with the children. And so one thing that we did in the book is we included about 120 stories of kids who are raised in these modern families. So you can look them in the eye and you can empathize with their pain and their loss and their identity struggles and their mother hunger and their father hunger, right? Like we have not done enough of sharing the stories and the pain that goes along with mother and father loss. So that's what's in the book. Stories, studies, natural law, biology, that's it. I mean, you can make a Christian case for Christian marriage, but that's not the one that we made in the book. Nope. I, nobody is going to, appealing to the authority of the Bible for people that don't um, agree with the biblical authority. Yeah, so this is where I, I, have to, I say up front, I find the book compelling. It's because of the data. It's the research. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the human stories. Mm -hmm. um, you're not a great fan of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, I don't think. It's still praised in the community uh, as something that liberated men and women. 
now we now know that uh, extraordinary loneliness and lack of sexual satisfaction is rampant amongst young people. This is the irony of where we've ended up. Right. That's another fact, but we needn't pursue that now. Perhaps the ultimate, um, uh, you know, symbol of these norms was in fact traditional marriage. Um, and throughout the West, that started uh, to be dismantled with things like no-fault divorce sounded very compassionate and reasonable and civilised. Uh, but uh, you have a slightly less enthusiastic take on it all. Can you elaborate a bit? I'll let Stacey unleash on the sexual revolution. Sexual revolution. Thank you. You betcha. Sexual revolution was the, the final chapter, I think, in the devastation that feminism visited upon women. Um, the mistaken approach, and I think probably innocently, uh, was that men had all the power, therefore we want power as women, um, therefore we should be more like men. Um, it has devastated women. I, and, I think a lot of what feminism sought to do was, was, was very appropriate and, and, and had a place. Yes, but the result... Um, the result of becoming more like men instead of championing the natural desires of most women and um, and building up families yeah. um, it has been utterly devastating to women because men and women do not traffic in the same um, uh, spirit-filling ways. Uh, Actually, the research is on your side there as well. We know... Women are not happy. And, you know, many overwhelmingly in Western countries, they indicate that given a choice... Right. ...they'd skew back more towards... More toward family and relationships. We know that, again, from the research. You know, you can't get away from it. It's undeniable. That's right. That's right. And so uh, the free sex, um, more often associated with the, the way that men would behave, um, has been nothing but ruinous to uh, what, what women need and what women are more drawn to to be fulfilled as human beings. Um, it's surely given men um, lots of recreational enjoyment, um, but it's really cost us women one another. Uh, if one woman is not going to give it up, well, there's another one coming right down the street. Um, our value has plummeted because of the sexual revolution. And um, I, I think it's left many women feeling very hollow and empty, and it has allowed men to step away from their responsibility to women. Um, Actually, in a way, the men. research tells us something else. It's created a playground for some men and an enormous amount of emptiness for others That's who right. are not, according to the fads of the day, desirable. Mm -hmm. right. And the dropout rate amongst young men is something else that the data, it should be really worrying us. No one's yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Well, and you know, you can look at the different waves of feminism. The first wave, I think, wanted equality, but did not say that equality meant sameness, mm -hmm. right? But it was the second wave that emerged during the sexual revolution that said, you're not really equal unless you're the same, unless you want the same thing that men want in terms of their career and their family and their sexual appetites. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is where feminism began to pit women against their own bodies. Right? It was a rejection of the female self and that bound up in the sexual revolution. And I think men and women have both been victimized by that, mm -hmm. but your own choice. It's when you victimize children because you're rejecting reality. You know, that's where I'm willing to stand up and say, not on my watch, 
right? Whatever ideas you have about your own personal liberation, it can't be at the expense of children's fundamental rights and thriving. But that's really where the, that I think is the greatest um, fallout of the social, sexual revolution is that it's kids who are losing out. And uh, surely the abortion uh, that needs to play a part of that mm -hmm. revolution because men and women are obviously saddled quite differently with the results of um, the sexual act. And if we need to be more like men, then we need to not be bound by the consequences of that act, therefore abort the babies. I think that honestly, in the United States, most conservatives, most Christians are very familiar with children's right to life, mm -hmm. and that is their primary right. And we recognized early on that adult sexual decisions were easily infringing on that right. But it is true that you have to have access to abortion if adult sexual expressionism and adult desire is God. Mm -hmm. If that is the greatest good in society, then of course children will have to pay the price for their life. Right. And many of us have just discovered, you know what, we have to stand against that because children are, are dying. And what we're doing at Them Before Us is, if that was Children's Rights 1.0, right, kids should not die for your sexual decisions. Right. This is Children's Rights 2.0, yeah. right? Their thriving should not be sacrificed because of your sexual decisions. So we are all in on the Children's Rights 1.0, protecting children's right to life. But thank God, there are hundreds of organizations that are battling to protect that fundamental right. Right now, Them Before Us is the only nonprofit solely devoted to defending children's rights on this side of the womb, their right to their own mother and father. But both of those rights are in jeopardy when you are governed by the principles of the sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. Indeed. To tease that out a bit, at the heart of uh, your book, uh, uh, you place the importance of gender or sex. You say this, and I'm quoting, gender is not a social construct. It is the very cornerstone on which society is built. Ignoring the differences between men and women wrecks the very foundation of civilization. That's a very strong statement. Mm -hmm. I found it the most interesting um, study in, in the book that in societies where men and women are um, really allowed to choose they have a lot of wealth freedom to choose where they want to go where they want to work what what their lives are going to going to look like these men and women are the most masculine and the most feminine when it comes to appearances um, choice of work um, when the, when the choice is free um, the sexes do what we stereotypically expect the sexes to do yeah, and if we are not going to recognize the distinctive and complementary ways that men and women interact, especially in the home, um, you will have children denied of what they need and what they crave because kids don't just need caregivers, right? right. They don't just need nice adults. Right. They don't just need parents. They benefit from, in terms of their biological identity, in terms of their optimizing their development, and in terms of satisfying their heart for the kind of love that they're made for, a male and a female parent, right? The two are not interchangeable. Barack Obama um, made such a passionate plea. I remember there was a real push for fatherhood and fathers in the home and how, how important um, those fathers are to the development of children um, and the dearth of fathers in the home in the black community for in, in this country. Um, although many, all communities are unfortunately catching up. Um, it, 
If father, fatherless homes are so devastating to the thriving and well-being of children, then two lesbians raising a child um, cannot have the same or better outcome as a fatherless child because that is, father, that, that is a fatherless home as well. Um, no matter how quality and capable and wonderful um, a woman, a gay woman or a, a gay man could be as a father or a mother, they are not capable of providing that dual sex influence on a child, with, which is exactly what children were intended to be raised by. Help me out a bit with this. Uh, I have four children that I love to bits. Uh, and I've made the observation from time to time that anecdotally when they were growing up, what I noticed was that they tended to look to mum for warmth and nurture and to me for play and stimulation and what might be called emotional excitement. Yeah. Uh, now, some people would say, well, that's just gender stereotyping. It's not real. Well, people live up to their stereotypes all the time. That's why they exist. Have you ever seen a woman uh, out, out front of the, the church tossing her toddler up in the air? No, no, she's standing by, biting her nails because she's terrified that her husband is constantly throwing that baby around. Yeah, so those differences in parenting are real, observable, and measurable, and they don't stem from the metaphorical uh, patriarchal boogeyman, they stem from the differences in biology, right? Women have higher levels of oxytocin um, that maximizes bonding and attachment, especially in the first three years. Women are wired for nurture. They just are. Men have some oxytocin, but not as much as their testosterone. And testosterone brings the fun, right? So really you can say that women tend to care for kids and dads tend to play with kids. Mm -hmm. And kids need both, right? They need a mom that is making sure that they brush their teeth and go to bed on time. And they need a dad who's like, actually, let's just leave for the day and do this, do this crazy hike. And it's amazing how these two things complement one another. This exists in every society, right? This is not some norm that is being placed over the top of Americans or or Japanese, this is what men and women do naturally because of their biological differences, because of their brain chemistry differences. And the amazing thing is it optimizes child development. Mm. Like we've got this one study in the book that I just think was fascinating. Kids that have a dad that read to them have larger, better cognitive development, but it's not because dad chooses different stories to read, it's because he reads the same story in a different way because the mom is saying, oh, how many pigs do you see on the page? And the dad's saying, where do you think that pig got all of those bricks? Like, I don't, did, uh -huh. there's no brick making factory in this story. Right. I wonder what he had to do to get it. Do you think that he had to like head down to Home Depot or what? Like there, men and women think differently, they interact differently, they have physical differences and that maximizes child development. Uh, you know, even just things like, when kids are with mom, they tend to be doing things that emphasize their fine motor skills, right? We've all had our kids chopping. crafting. Yeah, crafting with or them. preparing food. That's right, and yep. it's all things that have to do with their fingers. But when they're with dad, they're naturally wrestling, climbing, digging, running. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not because anybody was telling dad, hey, you should go race to the mailbox with your kid. It is naturally what dads do. Right. Warren Farrell makes this point. It's quite mm -hmm. interesting. He says that dads are instinctively better at fathering yes. than they think they are and that the community thinks they are. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Well, and you've got... In defence of dads who seem pretty maligned to me these days. They absolutely The common are. characters yeah. who think of Homer Simpson. You know, if you've got a dad now in a movie, he's the dag. Mm-hmm. He's irrelevant. He's a bit of an embarrassment. Yeah. He doesn't bring anything to the equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's not really how it is. Masculinity has really um, taken it in the shorts, so to speak, these days. Um, the value of men um, and the importance they bring to family, to society, um, it's really been maligned. Um, I, I can't imagine having done family without my husband when there's no heavy in the house. I mean, wait till your father gets home is still a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I didn't have that in my back pocket, um, yeah, my kids, my kids, especially my boys, would, would run roughshod over me. Um, men in the community, uh, it, toxic masculinity comes from a lack of boys being kept at bay and taught by healthy men who are invested in their lives. You know, when, when the first male authority figure that a kid comes up against is either like a, a gang leader or the police, they haven't been trained. They've been surrounded by females and brought up on, on other children. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get really bad outcomes um, and prisons full of kids that don't have fathers mm-hmm. because good men didn't teach them how to be men. Mm-hmm. Women cannot teach men how to be men. You said something there, if I'm understanding it, that's uh, very interesting and I would have thought pretty provocative. Toxic masculinity mm. is the product actually of absent fathers? Yeah. Non-involved fathers? Yes. Not of involved fathers? That's correct. When you, when Does the data really clearly show that? Well, if um, I, what, was the, what was the study with the, um, the gentleman that went in and studied the prisons and he said mm. that it wasn't a, a po- it was a population of fatherless yeah, men. Yeah, he said he said prisons are holding tanks for right. fatherless boys. Yeah, right. And that's holding tanks for fatherless boys. Right. Yeah, it's like seventy to eighty-five percent of people that are in state prisons are fatherless, and so. I heard, are- I heard someone quote those figures at a meeting I was in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And a fellow yelled out, no, 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 it's higher than that. It's it 95%. Could be percent. And everybody turned higher. on him and said, why do you know? And he said, I was a prison warden for 30 yeah, years. That's well. right. And he said, kids who, men who have been effectively fathered don't come to prison. That's that were, right. They were his words. Right. Yep. That's exactly right. This is a challenge for men. So let's not let men off the hook. They need to be involved, surely. They need, right. but, but the culture says you're irrelevant. Well, yes. So we've got to get that message through. Right. Uh, uh, we, we have to teach women to value men and don't you think most mothers instinctively do i don't think our cultural narrative does right i think that especially i mean we just had a decision seven years ago that said that men are optional in the institution of marriage Mm -hmm. so now do you think that you can emphasize that fathers are not optional when it comes to raising kids in fact the exact opposite is true right we have now made husbands and wives optional in marriage policy. And at this point, I don't know of any federal or government institution that would even say that children should have a father and should have a mother, because now that kind of talk constitutes discrimination. Well, right, they're taking it off of um, uh, of birth certificates, or changing yeah. birth certificates rather, um, out of all state documents. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, they're neutering even the word father and the word mother, yeah. right? Because now inclusivity and tolerance right. supersedes. You wouldn't right? want to hurt feelings. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think most women instinctually would say, well, this man is important, he's important to me, I need help, I need support. But that's not the dominant cultural narrative that we're hearing today, and culture is being shaped by law. The, um, the privilege that uh, Americans are fed, the, the white privilege that Americans are fed is the, the problem. No, the privilege is actually being raised by your mother and father. One of, um, one of the fascinating studies that really impacted me, um, they took and normalized for all the factors, looking at outcomes for our, our school um, success outcomes for children over all income brackets. And when they factored for income, class size, zip code, everything normalized, um, there was only a 3% difference of outcome for children raised in a two-parent family in the poorest neighborhood and the wealthiest neighborhood. It was the family being in the home. Now, as an aside, add God to the mix and the statistical difference disappeared. 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 Yeah, so the black students who are his, like the most underperforming demographic right now, if they are raised by their married mom and dad in a religious home, there's no difference between them and the high performing Asian no demographic. Difference. And so this And you really, pick Asians because they're the best performing of a lot. Right. But actually And only 15% of Asian kids come from broken homes? Something quite low, very I understand few. from the book. So what you can actually see when you're talking about academic performance is high school dropout rates correlate pretty lockstep with family structure. Right? Yeah. If your father is gone, you're gonna struggle in school. And African Americans have the most, the highest level of fatherless homes, followed by Hispanics, then white, then Asian. So why is it that Asians outperform everybody? Yeah, go figure. Yeah, maybe it's because they are being nourished on all of the social emotional staples that kids need. Their mm -hmm. own mother and their own father loving them every day and the stability that goes along with marriage. And here's the staggering thing to me. Some of the most famous universities in this country and in the world are in full flight denial of mm -hmm. that as they attempt to on sort of quota-based systems to write all of that and end up in an incredible mess. Yeah. They'll never talk about, this is a problem, right. never talk about the real predictors mm -hmm. of how the kids will do. They're not following the science, right? That's the a big science charge. shows that, you know, both sociologists on the left and the right agree that children raised by their own married biological parents in a low conflict marriage fare best in all mm. of these outcomes. And can I just say that's why it's up to us. We can't trust our universities. We can't trust our media. Uh, we can't trust the people that are riding on the reputation of being the truth and um, studies based. We need to be armed with information as just your run of the mill, you know, mom and dad or friend um, and have conversations with our people. We need to brave these waters and say potentially unpopular things and take risk and have a little courage um, because we're not going to get any of this information from our storied institutions. They failed us and they continue to fail us. It's our responsibility as the populace to inform one another, have groups, take risks. Um, understandably, a lot of very well-meaning people really have, I think, believed the line that all that children need to do well is love, to quote, you know, uh, all you need is love, as the, as the Beatles put it. 
Um, but actually, you're saying that that isn't enough, uh, really. That's the essence of, of, of the argument that you make, that a child should have a right, wherever possible, to access to both of their biological parents. You wouldn't need to read anything else in the book but the stories that we've included mm. from the kids and yeah. the pain, even the adult children who mm. experienced motherlessness or fatherlessness, um, the pain is palpable and desperate and totally raw and totally real. And not, not one child should have to express their, the, the hole that can never be filled. Not one child is worth um, satisfying the desperate desire of a single woman who put her career first and now decided it's time to buy some sperm because she's unsatisfied. I'm sorry. Um, we adults need to make sacrifices so that children don't have to. Taking um, the burden of, of being, being an older woman who, who made a mistake and should have taken a different path, to create a child in a lab to satisfy her is taking this big, huge burden of need and desperation and loss for what could have been and handing it to an infant. You carry this pain because I can't. It's the same with divorce. We can't live up to the vows that we made, sweetheart. Here's our big satchel of emotional heartache. You carry it. Let me say too, Stacy and I, absolutely agree that children deserve to be safe and loved. I think it's critical. I think kids need it. I think that it absolutely is one of the defining characteristics of what children deserve. But we actually have the data that tells us the factors that will lead to children being safe and loved most often. And that is being raised by both biological parents. Mm -hmm. Biology actually infuses the household with a level of protectiveness and connectedness and investment that we don't see when there's an unrelated adult in the home. And so chapter two is all about why biology matters. And why does it matter? Because rates of neglect and abuse skyrocket when there's somebody other than the biological parent in the home. Biological adults tend to invest more in their children's education. They tend to buckle the seatbelts of the children in their car more often. They tend to take those children to the doctor more often, yeah. right? They tend to feed them more food. More quality food. More quality food. Mm -hmm. And so what you see is the biological adults, the biological parents are the most connected to, invested in, and protective of children than anybody else in their lives. They are the safest adults in a child's life. So if you believe the science, and if you really believe children should be safe and loved, then you're on the them before us train. Mm -hmm. You believe that every child should be raised by their biological married mother and father whenever possible, because any other family structure will only increase the child's risk of abuse and neglect. To segue from that for a moment, I think one of the things your books brings out, and we've known this for a very long time, one of the things that's very dangerous for children is having non-biologically related males wandering through the household. Indeed, as a matter of fact, um, one of the studies shows that women, girls who are living in homes with unrelated biological males start to menstruate a year, was it a year earlier? That's um, what you say in the book. Yeah, the, uh, whether that's uh, pheromones of a signal that, you know, there's unrelated men in the home, that must mean it's a time for procreation on a very base level. Um, the, 
as Katie's so fond of saying, don't Google mother's boyfriend unless you want pages and pages and pages of devastating abuse of children. Yeah. Um, thank God most step-parents and most of mother's boyfriends are not abusing um, their, the children. But statistically, the most dangerous person in a child's life is a man who's living in their home, especially when he's left to care for the children alone. Yeah. Right? That is actually the person that poses the most risk and the most threat to kids. And so we have this narrative in our marriage and family conversations that if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy, or any two will do. You just need two adults. Well, then kids raised by their mom and her boyfriend who are living with them and contributing to the household income should be just fine. And yet those are the kids that are statistically the most at risk. Yeah. When for, the abuse is happening. Yeah, that's who, you, there. that's who you look at. Yeah. So we've got to like the lies that we are telling about children and about parents and about marriage and about family, it's killing kids. It's killing them. That's a pretty profound statement. But it's backed, I guess, you would say by the evidence. It is backed by the evidence. Your beef is not with me. If you object to that, your beef no. is with the research. Yeah. A lot of those dangerous situations arise, of course, because of an unhappy marriage breaking up. What would you say to those who say that surely it's better for children not to be brought up in an unhappy marriage situation uh, or an abusive marriage? Don't some marriages simply have to end and aren't the children's advantage, the children are advantaged if those marriages end? Where do you well, come out on that? Difficult when, issue. When it's an abusive situation, of course, the, the marriage should end. There are certainly circumstances when the safety of the family is um, the subject, then, then by all means. But most divorces are initiated. What is it, 80% of divorces About are initiated? 70. Mm -hmm. 70, thank you. I get a little exaggerating. Um, are initiated in low conflict marriages by the women. Um, maybe they had unrealistic expectations about what marriage was going to be, but it's just not doing it for them anymore. So they off they go into more exciting pastures, I guess. Um, there's a study in the UK that observed of the people that divorced after having children, um, those that did not divorce when revisited five years later, those that stuck it out were happier than those who went through with the divorce. Yeah. Very often it does not solve the problem that you think that it is solving. Well, we know that from the data too, yeah. that, that second marriages, third marriages, are more likely to fail, right. in fact, than the first marriages. Yeah, it's as if you're recreating the same problems that got you into hot water the first time. I think that they're responsible, those repeat offenders are responsible for the divorce rate being so high. Yeah. It's not that that the total number of people getting divorced or the total number of people married and getting divorced. It's those that continue on to the second and third marriages that really skews that data. So before the advent of no-fault divorce, we had um, situations that we permitted in situations of divorce, and that would be adultery, abuse, addiction, abandonment, right? And if that took place, one spouse was deemed at fault. They were at fault for wrecking the marriage vows. They were at fault for not living up to what they had promised. And then the court and all of society could side with the innocent spouse and reward the innocent and reward the mom or dad that was trying to keep the marriage together, trying to protect the kids, trying to do what was best, right? That is no longer where we are today. Today we have a no-fault divorce system, which means that anybody can exit the marriage for any reason at any time. Um, 
And the majority, like Stacey said, are not at-fault situations of things like abuse where you legitimately need to end the marriage. Most of them are because you've fallen out of love, you have communication issues, pretty much marriage. Marriage. I mean, marriage has, right. has come up and instead of dealing with the issues of right. marriage, you want to exit, right? And like Stacy said, that just means handing your load off to your kids and saying, you deal with it because I can't. Mm -hmm. So let me say, um, it's fascinating because all divorce damages children. It all hands them a burden that they shouldn't have to carry. But the kids that tend to be the most wrecked by the divorce are the 70% are the ones that had no idea that there was anything wrong. Like the 30% where there was abuse or there was massive high conflict. When the divorce takes place, they experience some relief. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, well, that makes sense. That was yeah. really rough. The 70% of the no-fault divorce situations where mom or dad was just unhappy, those are the ones that go, what? Right. And they either say, well, it must be me. I must, since nothing since was wrong. Since there was not conflict. Since there was no conflict, yeah. I must be the reason. It must yeah. be because of me. And it's those kids that have the hardest time forming their own stable relationships and marriages later on. Because what they learned from that divorce is, I can never rely on anyone. Even if it looks like this person loves me and has committed to me, until death do they part, they could leave for any reason and I'll never see it coming. Right. It's I had never heard any of that. Mm -hmm. Can I just say, I was a, a young university student when no-fault divorce arrived uh, in the parliaments in Australia. And I remember thinking, gee, this is not a bad move. It's a bit rough to have somebody outside the marriage saying one side's innocent and the other's guilty. Yeah. How would you respond to that? Well, I'd say that we've actually done surveys on the overall impact of no-fault divorce laws, right? And when the marriages can be exited more easily with no outside scrutiny, they tend to be entered into less often and people tend to make, take their commitment less seriously. So I think that there's a lot of people that will say, well, I don't want the government involved in that. But most of us have some friends or a few who have gone through that no-fault divorce situation and we see the absolute injustice that is wreaked on behalf of the innocent spouse and the kids just because one person doesn't want to adhere to their own marital vows and the devastation that comes, right? To that one spouse who says, I am willing to go to counseling. I'll do the parenting classes. Please, I wanna keep this home together. And yet the no-fault divorce laws gives the most power to the spouse that is misbehaving the most. And so in a general sense, you can say, well, we don't really want an outside party involved. But as soon as you're seeing it in your life and you are listening to the kid who's saying, you know, every night I go to bed sad and I don't know why, then you're like, get that third party in here and make that person own up to what they committed to because it is victimizing the innocent. That's really interesting food for thought. Something I'm not sort of focused on so much. It does give the lie to the idea that marriage is simply about love is love is love. That's one of the most trite sayings I've ever heard in Australia. It gets bandied around all the time. Love is love, as though that's just something meaningful. Actually, marriage is about a whole range of things. In many ways, it's about committing to love, surely. Not only of the person you married, but of anyone that you bring into the world. So it's a multifaceted, multi sort of elemental thing, true marriage, isn't it? It's much more than our culture says it is. Well, and um, if, it, if it wasn't, the government would have no interest in it. Um, when, we, when we get married, you know, the libertarians will never get their way of just having weddings in churches or, you know, weddings in the park with the, the spirit guide. Um, 
because it is a contract. We are making an agreement, and the only interest that the, that the state has in marriage is the next generation of taxpayers. Um, we're entering a contractual um, relationship acknowledged by the government, um, having an outside source, an outside um, uh, arbiter of whether you can actually break that contract, just like any other contract um, any other adult makes with another, is, is utterly reasonable and organized in society. This is a really important point because I noticed that one of the people who, in fact, the foreword, your book is written by Robert George. Now, he's a, an unbelievably respected academic here in America and around the world. And when he endorses a book, it's serious stuff. I just want to emphasize that again. But he makes a really important point there that's dear to my heart. In Australia, you get a lot of, particularly in the media, people who will say, I'm an economic conservative. I believe in sound economic management and balanced budgets and looking after the future. But I'm a social libertarian. Mm -hmm. In reality, as he says, a society that's falling apart because of social libertarianism, that no longer has any structures, no taboos anymore, anything goes, ends up finding itself almost unable to manage an economy properly yeah. because of the enormous social and economic costs of family dislocation. Yeah. We quote David Upham in the book who says, small government requires big marriage. Yeah. You are not going to have small government. You're not going to have personal responsibility unless you have big marriage. And marriage is not between whatever two adults with whom you share love and commitment. Marriage, the kind that is actually going to form responsible citizens, is always going to have the mom and the dad committed to one another for life. And as Chuck Colson, we were talking about him earlier, said, you're either going to have the conscience or the constable. Somebody's going to govern you. Why is it that this constitution that we have is made only for a moral and religious people? Because you will be governed by somebody. Is it going to be the conscience, which we see statistically is best formed in this smallest of all societies? with the two people responsible for the child's existence, raising them together every day for life, or you get government. You can have one or the other. So if you're serious about being an economic conservative and fiscally responsible, you are also on the them before us train. And you also believe that children's rights to their mother and father should be respected and protected. When it comes to the idea that all the child needs is love, what do you say about the right of two consenting adults to have uh, children? Um, you know, how, how can that be legitimately denied? Two consenting adults that would not be the Same biological. Yeah. Oh, uh, because the child has no consent in the matter. In order to make a child um, in the lab with big fertility, which is, I believe, what you're referring to, which is frankly human trafficking, you are literally trafficking in children, putting prices on. Um, a, a child purchased, bought, and sold. Any any of the stories in there talk so much about how they they were they were paid for. They they know what their price was, and it was seventy thousand dollars, and that was it. Um, no one has a right to possess a child that is not their biological child. Um, period. We don't have a right to children. Children have a right to us. Big part of the flavor of your book is we give parents all sorts of rights and adults can speak for themselves. We're not according the voiceless children who are too young to have a voice. 
Yeah, they, they, they don't advocate for themselves. They don't blog. They don't submit amicus briefs. They don't author books. They don't do interviews with former prime deputy prime ministers, mm -hmm. right? Like, and yet they have rights. They have very concrete, natural rights that are recognized worldwide, but there's nobody to protect them. There's nobody to speak up from them because by the time adults get to be adults, their self-interest drives most of these conversations about marriage and family. And so what do we need if we want a thriving society? What do we need if we want healthy, whole children who are safe and loved? We all have to become advocates for children on their behalf. So I, Stacy's spot on. Um, this idea that I have a right to children, I have a right to parenthood, even that I have a right to marry. No, you actually don't. Children have a right to their, they have a right to life, they have a right to their mother and father, and all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile, must bend to that child right, because the only other alternative is for that child to bend to your desires, and that's an injustice. We need to be honest about the costly nature of a child coming forward and um, say they're being brought up in an LGBT home, um, used as a political pawn. Um, the two people that are the most invested in, in them, that is, they're two moms, um, to, to speak to the father loss for a child in that environment is going to be extremely costly. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we just need to be the adults in the room and recognize the very complex nature of what these kids are experiencing and see a little bit past, well, the kids are fine. I mean, the kids said so. Um, the study said so, you know, the self-reported study said so. Um, it, we need to be a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more honest with childhood development and um, what the kids are actually saying. Because when they are anonymous, when they do have the freedom to speak clearly out without, of the household. With, when it's not costly, yeah. they're, not, they're yeah. not all right. Yeah. So you get a lot of research around, and there's been a lot of it bandied around in Australia, saying that, showing that, the, uh, that, that children who have grown up in same-sex parent households do every bit as well as anybody else any other child, if not better. Right. Yeah, fascinating how that works. It's so great. The, the, because the studies are self-reported, um, I think I, I made a, a joke I'm quite fond Is of. This Realville? In our book, In Realville. Um, if the study were titled properly, it would have been titled essentially, um, homosexual parents are not as honest as heterosexual parents are about their children and their parenting quality. Um, self-reporting how my kid is doing when I know that there could be some serious political ramifications for how the study is used um, is about as unscientific as it comes. Yeah. So all of those no different studies that people cite and quote, and there's like some, you know, 75% studies show no difference in child outcomes. And like Stacy said, Almost all of those studies are just asking the two moms, hey, does your kid like being how fatherless? How are they doing? And they're like, they actually love it. Oh, like, we are the best parents. There's no abuse. There's uh -huh. no depression. There's no anxiety. They're really, really happy. Right. And so, and they also are not randomly derived participants, right? They're volunteer. They're recruited. Right. In the same parenting group it, of the same socioeconomic the same status. Yeah. So this is my little thought exercise that I do um, when people are like, well, there's no difference, right? I'll say, okay. Sociologists have been studying family structure for decades. And when you are not talking about same-sex parenting, they tend to agree on three things. Number one, biological parents advantage children in ways that unrelated adults do not. Number two, 
men and women offer distinct and complementary benefits to children. So different are the ways they engage with kids that there really is no such thing as parenting. There's mothering and there's fathering and kids need both. And number three, they've seen that kids who lose a parent suffer trauma, whether that's through abandonment, even if they're subsequently adopted, through death, through third-party reproduction or divorce, right? That there's harms and it diminishes child outcomes. So since sociologists agree on all of this, why is it that magically when you're talking about same-sex parenting, there's no difference? There's no difference because love is love. I, right. Even though there's always a biological parent missing, they're always starved of the mothering or fathering that maximizes child development. And they've always suffered some kind of traumatic loss of a parent. Why do you think those studies show that there is no difference? And I know, I know, I know. Politics. <laughs> That's my guess. It is. And then when you look at those no different studies, you see there are deep methodological flaws about how they were conducted. They, they either self-reported, like Stacy said, they used very small sample sizes. They weren't longitudinal. Um, there weren't adequate controls. The main issue is they were recruited, right? They weren't randomly derived. And so since that no difference study, you know, avalanche that came leading up to same-sex marriage. We actually have some major studies cited in the book, chapter six, which talk about these population-wide data sets that we've drawn out of um, massive government research, government data. And we see that when you actually look at the real outcomes of kids, not what the parents think the outcomes will be or are, you see that no difference is actually massive difference. All different. And these kids don't fare well, right? Especially emotionally. They tend to be hurting more than their peers raised by married biological mom and dad. Coming to IVF, in vitro fertilization, it's increasingly common as women seek to have children when they're older and less fertile, which is an interesting development in itself. It's also used by female same-sex couples and intentionally single mothers. Your book discusses this extensively and you reproduce interviews from IVF children. That's interesting. Tell us about the testimony of the interviews ease in your book and how representative you think they are of the IVF experience. I should say there was a major study, a, a, a Senate inquiry of this in, in Australia, yeah. in which many of the sperm donor ch uh, children, adults, expressed great anger Mm -hmm. And it was never covered by the media. It was just last week, I think, that Australia totally banned anonymous donation. Oh. And it is because the donor-conceived community, especially in Australia, has risen up and said, you are denying us the biological identity, the accurate medical history that we deserve. This is a violation of our human rights. So that is what you're seeing now. We have been doing IVF for decades, sperm donation shortly after that, egg donation only for the last like 20 or 30 years because eggs are harder to get at than sperm. Um, and what we see is children created through these third party uh, arrangements. So IVF is one thing. IVF is in vitro fertilization, making babies in a petri dish, in glass, in vitro. Which is, uh, I think you're specifying that these are married couples that are using their own gametes too. Yeah. So to IVF can be used just between a married couple, but very quickly, once we realized that you could make babies outside of the woman's body, then it just blew the door open to all different kinds of honestly dystopic arrangements. It's the wild west. Yeah, where you can purchase egg, purchase sperm, uh, mix, per gather completely 
unrelated embryos that somebody else has left over, um, implant them in the woman's body, implant them in somebody else's body, implant them in the body of a brown woman overseas because her body is cheaper to rent than the white woman in California. And so IVF itself um, does not necessarily violate a child's right to life or right to their mother or father, but it did blow the doors open to all kinds of violation of children's rights. So IVF, um, unless done very ethically by only creating embryos that you intend to implant in the womb um, and no, having no surplus mm -hmm. having, and having no selective reduction is very cost prohibitive and is the only way to engage in IVF in a moral, yeah. um, decent kind of way. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt because I thought Well, the, a lot of people will say, are you against IVF? And I'll say, you have to use IVF in a way that doesn't violate the rights of children. Right. And the reality is one of the biggest ways that this violates children's rights is their right to life. About seven to 8% of babies that are created in laboratories will be born alive. Over 90% are going to die at some point in the process. Mm -hmm. They'll be frozen and they'll never emerge. They won't survive the thaw. They'll be deemed non-viable or the wrong grade, the wrong sex, and they'll be discarded. This is not a child-friendly technology by any stretch of the imagination. And so I do know people with highly formed consciences who have used IVF in a way that does not freeze or discard any surplus embryos. Those people are exceptionally rare because it is so cost prohibitive right. and it's so discouraged by the fertility industry um, that very often they'll be convinced to just make 10, freeze the eight you don't want, mm. right? But then that results in what we have now, which is about 1 million embryos on ice in this country, many of which have been functionally abandoned, right? We can't find their parents. We don't know who they are. Um, this is a technology that is not necessarily creating babies, it is creating on-demand designer babies. And now with the addition of surrogacy, they are going to anybody and everybody, not just heterosexual married couples, but they are like the highest increase in people that are seeking surrogate services are single men and gay men. So um, we are not creating babies, we are creating products that are going to whoever can cut the check for these babies. We spent a lot of time in chapter nine contrasting because people will say, well, isn't this just really another form of adoption? This is just <laughs> like adoption. And from a children's rights perspective, this is the exact opposite of adoption, right? In adoption, the child is the client. The goal is to find a loving home for every child. In big fertility, the adults are the client. The goal is to get a baby to the adults no matter the cost, no matter the cost to that child or any other children. In adoption, adoptive parents like me had to undergo months of screening and vetting and background checks and home studies in big fertility. There's none of that. If you have the money, you get the kid. And so if you wanna talk about the importance of biology when it comes to safety, and certainly when it comes to a child's biological identity, you are violating those rights on a massive scale um, and sending them into homes where they're often being cut off by their mother or father or both, and statistically being raised in homes that are riskier. We recently and very unfortunately um, passed something called the Uniform Parentage Act here in Washington State. Then before us was um, testifying against this legislation. And um, what comes from a place of, we just wanna make sure gay couples can, can have, have children, um, completely ignores the Pandora's box that they've opened. Um, the, the law 
doesn't require a woman to see a doctor any more than once when she is using IVF. Um, there's no merit, marriage requirement involved. Um, there's no husband requirement involved. So what they've essentially done is opened the door to whatever criminal enterprise wants to traffic in little babies mm -hmm. and whatever trafficked women um, criminal enterprise guy can get his hands on, he can bring them right into Washington state. They can see doctors wherever. Oh, they need a little, little permission slip signed. Impregnate all these women with babies that they have no biological relationship to. Leave the country with them and that's it. We've, uh, we've unleashed God knows what on criminal enterprise guy because he's a psychopath that has no conscience with 10 little babies that nobody, nobody who's just dating or um, is invested in in any way is related to. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is just straight up human trafficking. Um, we heard the other day in Australia of a father who discovered, a sperm donor who discovered that he'd fathered 585 children. Of course. Well, when you're donating a couple times a week for several decades, mm. what do you think is going to happen, right? And interestingly, those kids don't think of him as a donor. They're looking for him and they're not looking for a donor, they're looking for their father, uh -huh. right? That's because he is their father. And so here we have this idea that you can cut and paste children into any and every household and there'll be no problem, right? There'll be no difference. But these kids care and there is a difference. I think it's really telling and awfully heart-wrenching that the largest study done on sperm donation uh, conceived children is called my daddy's name is donor. It, um, and they consider daddy. him, they consider them as his daddy, right? right? So the world says, no, it's a stranger. It's just a donor. He doesn't matter to you. And yet he desperately matters to these kids. You know, one thing about um, IVF, uh, I think that is kind of ignored um, is the natural dance of men and women and how people choose their mates. Um, you know, how we, how we smell, how we behave with, with one another, um, whether you're sane, right? Um, and when we're choosing through a catalog, we're not choosing the way God intended or nature intended us to choose a mate um, that, that really works, that, that all of those signals tell us that our DNA is going to be a lovely match. Um, we could be choosing the guy that donated 500, or I think you were telling us here, the 500 children that he has across Australia, um, we could be choosing someone with serious mental illness that would be immediately obvious to us in person. Um, but when it's sanitized in a catalog, wow, he's super handsome. Wow, he has a, a genius IQ and he's a psychopath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you touch on something there that's important, which is that we know from the research that we're killing romance amongst young people as mm. well. And romance is all part of that dance that you talk about. Right. Where the human being, I suppose, finds ideally the right person. And it's not just a simple matter of falling in love. It's a whole range of factors that people should wisely take into account. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And all of that's been short-circuited. Yeah, right. that's right. There's, there's a reason why we're supposed to meet the father of our children, because there's actually a vetting process that is helpful to our future offsprings um, thriving and life. Right. And when you pick them out of a catalog, right, you don't have that chance to actually know who it is that you're making children with. Mm -hmm. Well, as we seek to pull all of this together, um, how well has your book been received? 
I think that generally, well, um, surprisingly well, surprisingly well. And I thought we'd only sell like 50 copies. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. And it's definitely taking a, a unique trajectory. A lot of books kind of peak right after they're released, but ours is holding very steady because really what this is, is it's a manual for this global children's rights movement mm -hmm. that we are launching. Um, and the movement is growing. It and is growing. So, yes. Yeah. I, I'd say that the, the most oft review, um, we get is I knew in my gut how these things were wrong. I knew for some reason that they were wrong and they didn't sit right with me, IVF, surrogacy. Um, but these women have given me the words and I understand the science and I understand the argument. And once you hear the truth and the ring that comes with it, you cannot unring that bell. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the feedback I've heard the most is, once you see that children have a right to their mother and father and they are harmed when they lose it, it's a very simple template that you can lay over the top of any trending news story or struggle that your friend is going through right. um, or any other ethical issue that comes up related to marriage and family. And you can pretty easily discover the right policy and personal decision. If you're forcing kids to sacrifice for you, no. Right. If you are sacrificing for children so they won't lose their mother or father, Yes, yeah. that's true in the personal realm and that is true in the policy realm. So I think that we have thought about all these different definition of marriage and divorce and same-sex parenting and cohabitation and polygamy and IVF and reproductive technologies. You know, and we're like, well, they're all different issues, but they're not. they're not, they're not. They really are all about kids and are you respecting them or are you disregarding them? And it is, it is this simple template, this simple lens that will help you see clearly on all these issues. And so that to me is why we have, thank God, experienced quite a bit of success mm -hmm. is because it is finally giving people the tools they need to make sense of what is a rapidly changing modern family and yeah. uh, modern landscape, which isn't going to stop, right? I mean, it's not like it's going to get better with the damaging cultural, legal, and technological changes taking place. Um, we're just we're, we're looking down the road at robot nannies and um, making humans artificial wombs, artificial and, wombs yeah. and all kinds of things. Like it's not going to get better, so we'd better get all of these answers straight right now. Yeah. I can imagine a lot of people being very angry for ideological reasons with some of the things we've discussed. And we can only plead with them to engage with the facts mm -hmm. and not to play the emotional game, mm -hmm. get real about the facts. But there will be another group who are genuinely bewildered and hurt because they have desperately wanted to love a child in different circumstances and they're not bad people and they're not oh. driven by activism that wants to destroy our culture. What would you say to those people who might be, let's be frank, hurt and pained by this conversation? So to those people who maybe have an IVF kid or in a same-sex marriage or in a divorce situation and, and they're feeling that, that genuine pit in their stomach, um, I say to those people, you could be our greatest, greatest advocates. Um, acknowledging the reality of the, the situation and championing rights um, because you come from, from a place where you've broken, you've broken some of these, these laws. Um, the, there's a woman, I can't remember her name, 
she was a Planned Parenthood executive. And one day she was asked to come into the room to assist in an abortion because they were short-staffed. And the moment she saw that baby trying to escape the pain of the instrument of death coming for it, she changed immediately and she became one of the most powerful voices for pro-life in our nation. And she is doing, she is doing the heavy lifting. Abby Johnson. Thank you, thank you. Um, God bless Abby Johnson. Yeah. And, and she's coming from a place where she could have gone and you know hid in the closet and spent the rest of her life on her knees begging God's forgiveness. But she is using that brokenness in, in an incredibly powerful way that nobody else really could from her position. That's the same thing with family structure and modern family folks. These people love their children. Um, nobody, nobody with the desire to parent a child is going to go into it with a hard heart intending to harm that child. If they have inadvertently done so because of the zeitgeist of our time, they could be the most powerful advocate for change of all. Let me say too that, you know, when I'm not doing this children's rights advocacy, um, I am in my husband's office, he's a pastor doing marriage counseling, <laughs> talking with people who are dealing with infertility or miscarriages, shepherding people who experience same-sex attraction or gender confusion, people that are going through a difficult marriage. The things, those kinds of things are some of the heaviest burdens and greatest heartaches mm -hmm. that adults experience. And we don't need to diminish them. We're not trying to diminish them. What we are saying is no amount of adult sadness or loss or longing justifies forcing a child to sacrifice something they have a right to because all you're doing is you are transferring your longing onto a child. And that is not where that burden belongs. You are the adult. It is upon your strong adult, fully formed prefrontal cortex shoulders. Like that is where the burden belongs. It is an injustice to shift that burden and that longing and that loss onto the child, which is what you do when you elevate your own desires above children's rights to their mother and father. Stacy and Katie, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, let's all agree on this. We need to be prepared to see things from the child's perspective mm -hmm. because they don't have a voice. That's right. We have to see it for them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm into that. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.